our thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here. Also that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade. And we're here to think and investigate and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance. In this episode, we visit Nanticoke tribal land in Delaware and talk the complicated story of American history. My husband is a eighth grade civics teacher and he was talking about the judicial branch with his students and they started talking about the case with Breonna Taylor. He told me that his students were supposed to like write a response about what they had learned. One student pulled him aside and said, I just feel like this is kind of weird and like I don't really think that justice was served. And he was like, okay, write that down. And he said the student looked like she had been like hit over the head. Like she was like, I can do that. I can just write down that I don't agree. He's like, yeah, <laughs> like that's part of what we're trying to teach here is not necessarily facts and dates and, you know, all these little pieces of information. We're trying to teach critical thinking about these different cases. So I remember when I was teaching high school in Virginia, I had to come in front of an administrative panel of my superiors because of some parent complaints about what I was teaching And it was surrounding the teaching of Charlotte Perkin Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, which is a short story that's kind of based on Gilman's own experience fighting depression and how she kind of wasn't taken seriously. And it's it is a piece that sits within the feminist movement. So to preface it, I gave background on what feminism is, who the the kind of the leading figures were of that time and what they proposed and what they said. And these mothers took offense to that because their daughters in my class, they said, had traditional values. And I was discrediting their traditional values. I was condemning them and I was indoctrinating them into radical feminism. I remember just sitting in that room, kind of like one of those moments where You kind of don't know where you are. Like you feel yourself above yourself looking at yourself in this room because it feels so out of the box of your understanding of what your place is in the world. Like I never thought that I'd be called into question for giving historical information. Like nothing I said was incorrect. It was all well-researched and well put together. And never did I say like, if you are not a feminist, you deserve to be kicked out of this country or you're not a real woman. I just kind of said what they said and kind of gave that overview. But I guess I had a positive tone. I don't know. But in the end, I was not fired, but I was asked to remove that short story from my curriculum. Wow. And you couldn't say no. I, to be honest, I put it back in like a year later because I, the, the principal like told me after he was appeasing them. He was kind of shutting down this inquiry into my, my teaching skills by saying, okay, we'll remove that story from the curriculum. Um, and so I did for, I mean, they were already taught it, but I did for the rest of that year for my next classes and I put it in later, but 
it was a censorship that happened because of the inability for parents to believe their children are critical thinkers. Instead, they think their children are lemmings and that anything they hear, even at a high school level, will become their new ideology. If they hear it, they believe it. Or I would hope if you're 16, hopefully at that point, that's not the case. You can hear something and question it and you can say, well, that's not the ideals I was taught. I don't know if I believe in that. Just like the kid in Jake's class, like, I don't believe this was right. I think that's kind of the argument here is that if we're not presented with all of these different stories, there's no way to discern at all. It's hard when you mix in, you know, history, society, culture, religion, and you you have so many truths that you've mixed around in this pot. And it's like, which do I have the right to question and which... If I question them, they change who I am and who my parents think I am and who my parents want me to be and maybe who the whole South wants me to be and who my tribe wants me to be. I think those questions exist for everybody and they can exist on a much larger scale, on a political scale, on like a social scale and and the fabric of how we understand ourselves as a country. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think that's part of why we wanted to go visit this new land purchased by the Nanticoke tribe in Delaware, especially considering the political atmosphere right now. Joe Biden just appointed Deb Holland to be the secretary of the Department of the Interior. That was like this historic move. She's the first Native American to be put in that position, which again is kind of allowing us to look at our country a little bit differently, to let us kind of discern, right? maybe what we should be paying attention to. And she did this big report about how Native Americans have been treated in the past centuries by colonists, mostly focusing on the education system, but with a little bit more context added in here and there. And that's a part of the story that we just have not really been taught. Maybe some people have. Hopefully people have been researching for themselves. But I don't know about you. I wasn't really taught about Native American culture and such in school. I was taught about the Anasazi tribe that was kind of like in Arizona and like southern Utah, but I lived in northern Utah. And so they kind of tried to make it seem like we didn't really bother them. It was like they they kind of wanted to like erase the people that were actually living in the Salt Lake Valley before white people took over, right? I didn't learn about those people. I learned about the Anasazis far away. So it's like they tried, but they didn't really make it. And I feel like that's kind of a story of the whole country in a way that we're we're in this weird moment where we're trying, but we're not really quite doing it. And so again, having people like Deb Holland in power is giving us the ability to see things in a different perspective. And so it was exciting to go and interview these people and just kind of see one part of us moving forward. I remember a few years ago, I was a tutor at George Mason University's Writing Center, and this student came in with a paper comparing and contrasting museums in Washington, D.C. The paper outlined their experience in the Holocaust Memorial Museum, how heavy the student felt while walking around, seeing the terrors of genocide. There were details upon details of the horrors inflicted on innocent people for reasons we can't believe or once justified in any part of the world. Then, the student said, 
they went to the National Museum of the American Indian. The museum focused on different tribes' cultures, showcased tribes' creations and wares, and talked of their relationship to nature. It was beautiful, the student argued, to focus on what good these people did for the world on a daily basis. But the student wondered, why did the Museum of the American Indian shift focus away from the genocide? And the Holocaust Museum fully faced the horrors of genocide. Generally, museums and textbooks and history books struggle to frame the story of colonists' effect on Native Americans. We struggled to frame the story for this podcast. We want to celebrate Native Americans for their incredible culture, for the way they shaped and worked with the land, for their unity and spiritual complexity, to focus on the good and forget the bad. But forgetting is the problem. We have to also understand and acknowledge the pains and horrors white people have inflicted on Native Americans for the past centuries. <laughs> Museums, despite their celebration of culture, have a history of hiding Native American artifacts, a metaphor so obvious it practically screams at us. I know sometimes museums, like larger museums, will send it back to smaller tribal museums, like some uh -huh. of the stuff that they have. But, um... Some of the museums, like in Washington D.C., they didn't send back anything. They didn't they send just, back anything. They put it in drawers, and then yeah. on the second floor we had some things there, but you had to pull the drawer right to mm. find the stuff, things they have so much. Interesting. Yeah. Putting it in drawers is like an interesting like metaphor. Yeah. Hiding it away almost. Yeah, and if you don't know, you don't know to pull like the, you know. Yeah. Lots of times you're told, like, not to touch the furniture, so... Yeah. It's interesting. This hiding is due in part to the way museums find these artifacts. Colonists often steal them from Native lands, or sometimes take them after desecrating Native American burial grounds. Grave robbers steal skulls and bones and antiquities, an LA Times article reports. In that same article, Risling Baldy, a professor of Native American studies, said... From a spiritual perspective, from a cultural perspective, or even a human perspective, it's hard to imagine the graves of your ancestors being dug up and then put into a museum. It kind of creates a mythology around Native people that we are somehow specimens rather than people and human beings." End quote. Museum representatives usually react one of two ways to these claims. They either admit they've done wrong and try to rectify the situation, or else ignore the charges altogether. In a positive twist, in recent years, museums from all over the world have been choosing the former route, giving artifacts back to Native American tribes, back to their rightful owners and rightful places. In 2018, the British Museum in London returned artifacts to the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde in Oregon. Artifacts that were just hidden in their archives for 120 years. And in January 2022, UC Berkeley plans to return human remains that were stolen after the Indian Island Massacre, an event that took place in 1860. A group of white men snuck into the Wyatt tribe's village and just killed people for no reason. To make things worse, other, or maybe the same white people, the article doesn't say, of course, as we tend to use passive language in situations where white people are at fault. Anyway, Whoever they were, they dug up the Wyatt graves and gave the remains to museums. See what I mean? America's culture is so wrapped up in violence, we can't tell a story about the good without the context of the bad and vice versa. 
And when you have the context, you also start to wonder if the good the museum is doing by returning the bodies, if that should be celebrated at all, when it's a bare minimum for respecting people. In our history, there will always be something left out, something not touched on, because this history is expansive and complicated. That's the problem with history in general. It's a story, a curated story that omits details for practical and also insidious reasons. Who gets to decide what's important? Here's another piece. As we push for museums to return the artifacts to their rightful owners, there's also been a push to return land to Native American tribes throughout the United States. The Yale School of Environment wrote about how returning lands to Native Americans is best for protecting nature. President Biden appointed Deb Holland as Secretary of the Interior, the first Native American to take that role. And David Truer wrote in The Atlantic of returning the national parks to the stewardship of Native American tribes. And weaved through all of that, all across the country, Native tribes have participated in the government's buyback program to reclaim their land. So, this story has many different layers and players and details, but it has one theme in common. Colonists stole from Native Americans, and it's time to return what was taken. We wanted to tell one chapter that exists within this vast history that involves both museums and land. In small town Delaware, near the coast, the Nanticoke and Lenape tribes bought back a 31-acre parcel of land. We wanted to see what this reclamation looked like. We're here. We made it. We're at the Nanticoke Indian Museum. All right. We're going in. Let's do it. We visited to talk with museum guide and Nanticoke tribe member, Morningstar, about the tribe's methods of conservation. Um, we're in the Nanticokes of the night, uh, uh, Houston tribe, and uh, Nanticoke means uh, t- the Tidewater people. This is a family, family museum. Uh, some was traded, uh, items were traded, some was given. Everybody loves us. Uh, they give us a lot of things. Our turtle is our logo. Oh, yeah. Yes, the turtle. The museum was quaint, but chock full of Nanticoke relics, artifacts, and history. It was largely set up as a preservation of family and tribal history. In 1930, that's my father and that's my uncle there. That's amazing. That's the best article I could find, because this is no longer in publication. I don't know if you could get it, you know. Morningstar told us about her own family and her story. Uh, our families uh, uh, are from Dover and Jersey, and my mom was born in Dover, and my dad was born down in Sussex County. Okay. Yeah, and we were all da- uh, b- born in Sussex County. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So, so d- you grew up here? Yes, yeah, so next road over. Oh, really? <laughs> next road over, and our homestead is still there. My niece lives in, the, in my, my mom's home. And I, um, I always told my mother, I said, Mom, I want the first lot up to the front. If you pass away, can I just have that lot? And so it's my mother's house. And then my, it was my sister's house and she passed away. And my nephew sold that land to me. And so my daughter lives there. And then I live next wow. to my daughter. So we live on the same property as we was born on. I married my husband, and he was from Wilmington, but he had a, um, a home on the riverfront. You know, his family lived the riverfront, and he was a chief. He was chief for uh, 
three and a half years in Elm County for 10, but he passed away three years ago. So this June, June 11th, he'll be gone three years ago. Mm, sorry about that. Yeah. The Nanticoke tribe itself were proficient farmers, focusing on the three sisters. Corn, bean, and squash, and so corn grows up, bean grows around, and squash germinates it. Mm. So we had corn, bean, and squash. Made up of roughly 200 members, one of the largest tribes on the eastern shore in the 15 and 1600s, members of the Nanticoke tribe knew when to hunt, when to fish, when to plant, and when to gather. They built tools specific to fishing. We got to see eel traps and crab traps at the museum. Eel plot was famous for us, and we called eels, and that's how we, uh, that's how my, uh, my grandfather got rich, catching eels, crabs, and fish. Mm -hmm. Ocean and water, a small the tribe lived in wigwams and wore clothes fashioned from animal skins and jewelry made from quills and shells. They knew the land. They understood the land. They worked in closed-loop cycles. Nothing was lost. John Smith. You know, that character from the movie Pocahontas, voiced by Mel Gibson. Well, he came across the Nanticoke tribe in 1608. Well, the first contact we had was Captain John Smith, mm -hmm. and we came down to Chesapeake. After testing each other out for a bit, the tribe shooting arrows, the colonists shooting guns, they offered each other gifts. Smith called the Nanticokes the best merchants of all. But we all know how this story goes. The colonists made life very hard for the Native Americans, taking land, destroying the earth and animal habitat, and presenting treaties that were difficult to understand for Native Americans who didn't speak English and were then often ignored by those same colonists. When the Europeans found out that we was having nice skins and things, they put poison on them mm. uh, to, just to take the meat and then sell it and then take the poison and it make us sick too also. Yeah. Mm. But we mm. get greedy people, you know, and so. Yeah. Some Nanticokes left. They walked westward or traveled by river to get away, but the rest of the tribe held their ground. The colonists were threatened by the Nanticokes and other tribes' connection to the land. The land gave the Nanticokes power. In 1803, President Thomas Jefferson announced plans to disconnect natives from the land. To do so, he offered them a credit system, which eventually put them in debt and caused them to give up their land to repay the colonists. He proposed teaching Native Americans to farm, to abandon hunting, and rely on Western agriculture and domestic manufacturing. Basically, he wanted them to assimilate to an intruder's way of life. Jefferson said outright these plans. To promote this disposition to exchange lands which they... Okay, okay, so that voice is a little too silly. Let's try this again. To promote this disposition to exchange lands which they have to spare and we want for necessaries, which we have to spare and they want, we shall push our trading houses and be glad to see the good and influential individuals among them run in debt because we observe that when these debts get beyond what the individuals can pay, they become willing to pay them off by a session of lands. Instead of learning from the Nanticokes, the colonists wanted the land for what they thought was better, logging and mining and building, 
ultimately rendering the Nanticoke's land unrecognizable. And so it went for centuries, white people moving in, taking and taking and taking, until the power they were threatened by was no longer a threat. But the Nanticokes have worked for centuries to reclaim their land. They saved money and they bought some land back, and then in 1881, they were recognized by the state as a legal entity. They founded the Nanticoke Indian Association, which was granted nonprofit status in 1921. Now, they own the museum, a church, and the Nanticoke Indian Center, and they hold annual powwows where they showcase Native American dances and crafts. And in November 2021, the Conservation Fund, with help from the state of Delaware and a private conservation group called Mount Cuba Center, they bought 31 acres of land in Sussex County, Delaware, and donated it to the Nanticoke tribe. Yeah, 31 acres behind the school is really nice. She must make a trail or do something like that on mm-hmm. it, because it's, it's great. The tribe plans to use the land as a gathering space to connect and thrive together. A few minutes drive from the museum, Melissa and I visited the land. We're here at the new land of the Nanticoke tribe. It's very windy and the wind is blowing through some tall grass. It's actually beautiful. It's actually, I think that's corn. Looking good. It was a windy day and we stood behind the Nanticoke Indian Center, looking out over the field they had just obtained. To passerby, it might just seem like an inconsequential plot of land, but with meaning behind it, it was absolutely amazing. While a beautiful and long overdue addition to the Nanticoke tribe, after all this time, it's hard not to wonder if they should have to pay at all. There's a difference between buying land and having land given back, especially when the United States has made it difficult for Native American reservations and societies to thrive financially. Many reservations are sovereign land. Native Americans own the reservations, which excludes them from government funds. They'd have to create their own governments, banks, schools, etc., which creates a disadvantage compared to a well-established governing body. This is Rose Cherry, another museum visitor from the Shinnecock tribe in New York. And I think also, I think a lot of myths behind like how much money the government gives to reservations yeah. is a myth because yeah. there's right mm. even like the college tuitions like you know everybody's yeah. like oh if you need a ready you need college tuitions and there's so many tribes that like don't get anything at all yeah. mm-hmm. and even housing on reservations like and that's why a lot of people left because you it's sovereign land so you can't get a mortgage mm-hmm. so yeah. that's why there's a lot of trailers on reservations yeah because mm-hmm. you right? can't purchase a piece of the land you just can sit a home on top of it well the government's not going to give you money mm. they're mm-hmm. not oh, going to lend see. you money yes. because you're your own gotcha yeah. right uh-huh. you're your own sovereign government so that you're expected to have your own bank basically yeah and okay. so essentially it's kind of like it's like a stranglehold mm-hmm. of folks. so mm-hmm. i mean this is like super super complicated but not, because we all know, like, ultimately, it's like, we know the just roots. white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, you know? Yeah. And it's basically just trying to drive people out. Right. Yeah. And take and take and take to the point where, like, it's almost, like, happened like, like a thief in the, in, the, in the middle of the night. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. you're like, wait, that was ours. And it's like, well, now you have to prove it. Mm, yeah. yeah. The federal government has controlled more than just the land, too. Both Morningstar and Rose Cherry focused on the education system colonists forced Native Americans into. Colonists forced Native children from all over the country to leave their families, 
to go to schools hundreds of miles away and assimilate to white Western culture. A report by Deb Holland, Secretary of the Department of the Interior, goes over the effects of these schools on Native children. Holland states, Beginning with President Washington, the stated policy of the federal government was to replace the Indians' culture with our own. This was considered advisable as the cheapest and safest way of subduing the Indians, of providing a safe habitat for the country's white inhabitants, of helping the whites acquire desirable land, and of changing the Indians' economy so that he would be content with less land. Education was a weapon by which these goals were to be accomplished. The students lost all autonomy. The federal Indian boarding school system renamed Indian children from Indian to English names, cut their hair off, discouraged children from speaking their native language, and arranged children into units to perform military drills. Their days were scheduled out to a T, and much of their schedules dedicated to chores like livestock raising, dairying, lumbering, cooking, and working on railroad systems. Labor that would ultimately be the only experience colonists hired them for afterwards. Colonists abused the children, sometimes forcing older children to punish younger children. Many children didn't see their families ever again. And many other children died in these schools after being exposed to new viruses, their bodies buried on school grounds across the United States and Canada. Part of Holland's reasoning for the report on schools was to show the need to investigate these schools as unofficial burial grounds, to request the return of student bodies to their tribal homelands. I was one of them that um, finished eighth grade Well, they started integrating. So well, the rest of our children, they wouldn't let us go to the black school or the white school. Hmm. So Rhoda here, this is why it's called John Williams Highway. It's because John Williams put us on train and sent us at the Lawrence, Kansas Haskell Institute. And our, and our children graduated, some of those people up there graduated from, up, uh, from Lawrence, Kansas. Now it's a university. Some of our people are in California and some's in uh, Kansas. Um, and so that's how they migrated to different, you know, and married different Indians because mm. of the, the different cultures. Wow. Yeah. Schooling is just especially with uh, marginalized groups, Native Americans, African Americans. It is a school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And you can see that it's not for free thinking. It's not for, it, it's literally to make workers unless you're in specific type of schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but that's why. But it is modeled after a factory. Yeah. <laughs> you're welcome, baby. You're welcome. Thank you. I, I want to center you. But yeah, so yeah, so I homeschool specifically for that reason. Yeah. Because I want my kids to know the true history of this country and what we're living in and, and for them to be fully aware and proud of themselves. That's why you have a lot of homeschools because the teachers don't want to preach what, yeah. what, it's, you know, what it's supposed to be. Like Christopher Columbus, he did not discover America. Right. One lady came and said, you know, the teacher said, don't you dare say that. Don't you dare say he didn't discover it. You know, so wow. she took him out of school. Assimilation and land session. A displacement so effective, Native tribes are still feeling the effects to this day. But to zoom back in, for the Nanticoke tribe, 
the land reclamation isn't just taking back what always belonged to them. They're also creating a place for the tribe to reunite, to come back to the families they'd been torn from. Colonists took so much and still take so much. One parcel of land is just one step in a greater need for reparations. In your experience, do you feel like Delaware State has the tribe's best interests in mind, or do they ignore the tribe? Or I think they're coming along now, but Delaware State didn't. Mm-hmm. University did, but uh, Delaware State didn't. I think they're coming along now because they're having things at the University of mm-hmm. Delaware State. Yep. So again, should they have to buy what was already theirs? In an Atlantic article, writer David Truer, member of the Obidjwi tribe, argues that national park land should be returned to tribes throughout the United States. Yosemite, Yellowstone, Theodore Roosevelt Park, all land taken forcefully and violently from native tribes. In fact, maybe that last part of the sentence is all we should say. (laughs) All land taken forcefully and violently from native tribes. This fact has been hard for some modern white Americans to digest. The story of our country's history is a heavily edited one, an idea of people coming together for the first Thanksgiving, a wishful thought of people trading peacefully and working together to create this country. It's just a dream. What is the story behind a dream catcher? It catches all the bad dreams in the middle, and all it flows out the feathers, and the good ones stay within. Mm. Rose Cherry talked about the idea that white people believed the country was promised to them. We can find evidence of this in old text, scripture even. She goes further. I think that's the thing that this country has to actually reconcile with, is that what they're saying is ultimately true. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. What they're saying is ultimately true. The 13th Amendment is there to actually keep slavery in place, Mm. right? A lot of these small white towns, they run by black and brown bodies being Mm. incarcerated. Mm -hmm. They don't want those prisons to go, even if the numbers go down. So bail reform, defunding, abolition, all these things are bringing more resources they don't want because it's not a dirty little secret. It is the truth. I think it's like this, um, this willful ignorance also of folks not wanting their privilege to be taken away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Because if you, you know that if you acknowledge and accept that these are facts and this has to be rectified and that these neighborhoods are the way that they are, purposely, the government purposely had redlining. Mm-hmm. Right? All of these things are true. And this is like not made up. Like, you just go get a book. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's just go read a book. Just go get a book. What about David Truer's book? You know, the writer we quoted from The Atlantic? It's called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Want some fiction? Try the popular for a reason novel, There There, by Tommy Orange. How about Louise Erdrich? She's written books of all genres telling Native American stories. And that's just scratching the surface. We have to read because without the full story, we all lose the cultures that established this country. And I think that's the part of like yeah. colonization is like mm-hmm. you yeah. take away and you strip people, right? To the point where you're like, yeah. do we have a culture? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And American culture is nothing without us. The Nanticoke Indian Museum tells their story, their artifacts, their way of life, their money systems, their family history, their list of 31 names that belong in the tribe. It's all there for generations to learn and to know the origins of this land. 
And there are so many more out there. Making sure that when we visit, we uh, pay respects to the original people of the land. Mm -hmm. yeah. Always. And you can always find that <laughs> wherever you go if you're looking for it. Maybe I live in an echo chamber. <laughs> Quite possible. And maybe I'm truly seeing a change in culture. I hope so. But the people I associate with in person and on the internet want to know all the different parts of America's history. We want to know the good, the bad, the bloody, the incomprehensible, the broken, the reclamation. We want to learn it, to teach it, to deeply understand our whole history and how it still affects people to this day, so we can know what to do about it. We tried to be cognizant of our language in this story, to use active language instead of passive, to put the colonizers at fault. So often, we see language like Native Americans were displaced. While that's factual, there's no one to blame in that narrative. Remember the student who wrote about the museums? They argued that our museums should do the same thing, calling out the actor, but still centering the people affected. Rose Cherry held Morningstar and told us specifically that Morningstar was the voice we should center because she had lived through so much injustice and was still here to honor and thrive as a member of the Nanticoke tribe. Here she is again with her truth, the truth. Oh, I, I cherish it because it's my family, my heritage, yeah. and I want to, you know, I want my future generations to know where we came from and where we're going and that, you know, keep us in, keep us in spirit and keep us in mind because if we don't, you know, it'll be forgotten, you know. They think there's no Delaware Indians in here, especially in the school systems. Yeah. They don't even tell about the Delaware Indians. They're way out west with the uh, Cherokees and all of them. And there's, right on the homestead, there, there's the Nanticokes. Yeah, what would you, one last question, what would you say, like, the Nanticoke tribe stands for? Like, what are your core ideals? Uh, it stands for um, unity and strength to keep us together. Um, teamwork, we are strong. And so we, you know, we'll strength and uh, we'll keep us going. Up next, Melissa talks with Kara Hoistler-Bowen and TJ Hindley about the fraught saga of our history textbooks and how they affect our education on race. You could say I was a cynical youth always believed there was more out there than the grown-ups in my life were sharing. I found James Lowen's book when I was in high school, Lies My Teacher Told Me. I thought, yep, he gets it. Here's a grown-up who understands. 
The full title of the classic is Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong. In it, Lowen explains the flaws in these narratives of America's past, usually made by sugarcoating, oversimplifying, or burying the rocky uncertainties of the past under a blanket of dull names and dates narration. The book won awards, selling over 2 million copies since it was first published in 1995. I went to go pick it up again at my local library, and while walking the stacks, I felt a worry brimming to the surface. Wouldn't this be the kind of book that could, possibly would be banned for today's students? It was the book that taught me concepts like racial nadir, the downturn in American race relations after Reconstruction, with the rise of lynchings and the Ku Klux Klan. In his first full-time teaching job at a black college in Mississippi, James Lowen witnessed a kind of whitewashed history. He told NPR in 2018 that his inspiration came on a day when he asked his class what they knew about Reconstruction in America. 16 out of 17 of his students, he recalled, told him that Reconstruction was the period right after the Civil War when Blacks took over the government of the Southern states, but they were too soon out of slavery, and so they screwed up, and white folks had to take control again. If this is the history you were told, I'm sorry, but these were lies your history teacher told you. Blacks never took over Southern states, all of which had white governors throughout the period, and the language that whites had to take control, like they were a weary parent teaching a 16-year-old to drive and how to take the wheel once the haphazard youth ran a red light, that is skewed diction. So if this was the history you were told, where did it come from? Would you believe me if I answered mint juleps? Mint julep textbooks, to be exact. It's a term I learned from the research and expertise of Kara Hoisler Bohan, a professor in the Department of Educational Policy Studies at Georgia State University. Initially developed by former Confederate veterans immediately after the Civil War, mint julep textbooks were all white Southern textbooks written and marketed for Southern students. When I read a book by Jonathan Zimmerman, who's a professor at UPenn called Who's America? And he talked about these mint julep textbooks. I was like, what? I've never heard of this. So I decided to investigate um, further and uh, then actually do what Lucy Salmon said, which is go to the sources and look at some of the original textbooks. And you could see post-Civil War such a clear divide. We did two things, not only just typical historical analysis by reading the words and determining meaning, but um, also content analysis, which is like counting how many words they're devoting to each of the three topics that we picked. And we picked ones that we thought would really be controversial, right? John Brown, he's still, I think, you know, debated. And then Nathan Bedford Forrest, he's most well known. This was Confederate Cavalry Commander Nathan Bedford Forrest. Up for debate in the telling of his history are his actions at Fort Pillow. Northern textbooks describe him killing hundreds of African-American soldiers attempting to surrender, even titling the event as the massacre at Fort Pillow. Southern textbooks say that the Union troops were attempting to run away, yes, but while still firing on the Confederates. 
one writer even saying that the frightful tales of the surviving black soldiers perpetuated northern slander in calling it a massacre. Beyond these depictions, other textbook writers of the time and into the future omitted the event from their telling because they thought it was unimportant, too controversial. I mean, they say there are two sides to every story, but what do you do with that when you are tasked with packaging that story as the settled truth for children to learn? Forrest is dead, but still raising him up as a hero a man who before the war amassed wealth as a slave trader and after served as the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, that would mean something in the teaching of our American self. There was a congressional inquiry into what really happened at Fort Pillow after the fighting was over. First Lieutenant Mac Leeming of the Union's 13th Tennessee Regiment wrote his regiment's official report of the battle. He explains that at first the Union soldiers chose not to surrender, But then, well into the fighting, many threw down their weapons and attempted to run for the river, where Confederate soldiers shot at their heads in the water. First-hand documents, like Leeming's letter, are important to our history. Kara's forthcoming project, Teaching Enslavement in American History, Lesson Plans and Primary Sources, co-authored with historian H. Robert Baker and Black history educator LaGarrett King, provides just that first-hand documents. Here she is explaining what inspired it. One night at a dinner party, I got asked when I was describing the book that I um, was writing, well, what about the happy slaves? And I mean, this was like a year ago. This person was educated in the 1970s. And I'm thinking, well, probably the textbook that he read in the South indeed emphasized that. Didn't question it. You know, it spurred me even further to want to try and help create a book that talked about how you teach enslavement that has the primary sources. Bennett Minton wrote an outlook piece for the Washington Post in 2020 titled, The Lies Our Textbooks Told My Generation of Virginians About Slavery. He was educated in the American K-12 system in the 1960s and 70s. In the piece, he references a seventh grade textbook with a chapter 19 titled, How the Negroes Lived Under Slavery, and provides quotes from the text, such as, A feeling of strong affection existed between masters and slaves in a majority of Virginia homes. The masters knew the best way to control their slaves was to win their confidence and affection. It cannot be denied that some slaves were treated badly, but most were treated with kindness. This interpretation of the South is that lost cause narrative, the storyline that attempts to cast the Confederate pre-war lifestyle, actions, and defeat in the best possible light. In the idea that Confederate soldiers were heroic martyrs, none more so than Robert E. Lee. That states' rights, not slavery, caused the war. And that African Americans were actually faithful slaves, loyal to their masters, and the Confederate cause. If you think the Civil War wasn't fought about slavery, then all you need to do is really read the South Carolina Declaration of Secession where they have slavery in it, right? Um, I don't need to tell you that. James Lowen's response to mint julep interpretations of the South and Reconstruction was also to write a new textbook. 
titling it Mississippi, Conflict and Change. NPR reports that despite high ratings from reviewers, the Mississippi State Textbook Purchasing Board rejected the book on the grounds that it was racially inflammatory. Lowen and his co-authors sued the board. When asked on the witness stand why the book was rejected, one board member turned to a picture of a lynching. The judge, an older white gentleman, turned to the man and said, But that happened, didn't it? Didn't Mississippi have more lynchings than any other state? And Turnipseed, the board member, replied, Well, yes, but that all happened so long ago. Why dwell on it? To which the judge said, Well, it is a history book. The U.S. District Court ruled in favor of Lowen, and the textbook was adopted for a few years. Lowen told NPR that the whole escapade proved to him that history can be a weapon and that it can be used against students. And Kara might add, even teachers. The teachers had a real need, and now I feel like their need's even greater because now they're scared. I mean, we have a teacher shortage that is caused by many factors, but um, the low pay isn't the number one factor that teachers cite when they resign. It's the lack of support for what they're doing in the classroom. That's actually number one reason that teachers are participating in what they call the great resignation. I live in Virginia. Our new governor, Republican Glenn Youngkin, in his first executive order, banned what he termed inherently divisive concepts, holding up his campaign promise to stand against the teaching of critical race theory in K-12 schools. I read the four-page order. In it, Youngkin writes that inherently divisive concepts, like critical race theory and its progeny, instruct students to only view life through the lens of race, and presume that some students are consciously or unconsciously racist, sexist, or oppressive, and that other students are victims. Youngkin's order states that the Superintendent of Public Instruction shall review all changes made to the Commonwealth of Virginia's public education curriculum to identify these divisive concepts, and then initiate changes that will replace them with lessons that ensure all Virginia students are taught to respect individuals regardless of their race, sex, or faith. Critical race theory and these divisive concepts violate the Civil Rights Act, the order claims. So then what is critical race theory? Here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I don't know if some of you guys have seen this critical race theory. It's basically teaching kids to hate our country and to hate each other based on race. And here's historian and author Ibram X. Kendi for now this news. Critical race theory is an intellectual sort of field that emerged in the late 1970s and early 1980s among legal scholars and lawyers who were recognizing that racial disparity was persisting despite the public pronouncements that all these laws on the books were race neutral. And so these scholars recognized that something was wrong here and that they had to take a new critical approach to examining the law, to examining policies, to examining structures, which they recognized were the source of these continuing disparities and not what's wrong with, with people. It's inconceivable that, that a white teacher would be teaching white children that they are evil because they're white. Uh, but that's what people think 
uh, even though it's blatantly false. And finally, here's Kara. Kind of laugh that, that <laughs> this became the term of the moment, to be honest, <laughs> because it's such an obscure theory. We do have a faculty member in my department who teaches critical race theory as a framework to potentially use as for a dissertation. That's not happening in K-12 schools, trust me. It's theory of K-12. And pretty advanced students who went on to Ivy Leagues when I was at um, the school in New York, but never once did I teach them critical race theory. I'm in one of the states where you can't teach divisive content you aren't supposed to talk about race. And I thought, how in the world can you teach American history without teaching, you know, about race? Because it was there from the start. I mean. Yet alongside Youngkin's restrictions is a new elective class offered throughout Virginia, African-American studies. I spoke with Rockingham County High School history teacher T.J. Henley to hear more about it. We had... 59 students this year for the first year, and I did not expect those numbers whatsoever. Um, I have enough for two sections again next year, so apparently it's doing all right. I did teach world history too last year, or I like to call it uh, European history. Even our countries around us, the Spanish-speaking sphere and the Francophone sphere are all derived from European nations, mm-hmm. so that's how we view our, our world. But you're gonna have some voices lost. Yeah. in that discussion. Quite a few voices. And yeah. African-American history this year has allowed me to mention a black person's name beyond Martin Luther King Jr. and <laughs> Rosa Parks and Ida B. Wells. And not that those three people aren't crucial cornerstones of history, influential leaders in their own right. There's many more influential leaders of color out there, and these students just haven't been exposed to it or at the very least, they have not been pushed to do that research on their own. Up against Yunkin's order, Mr. Henley says he does have worries about backlash against the class, since it may seem to the public like the perfect place to teach CRT in a K-12 setting. However, he has faith in the county representatives, who have already responded to parent complaints about the theory in schools, usually by detailing exactly what CRT is and how it is not taught in K-12 had a lot of taboo words out there, you know, privilege, prejudice, uh, critical race theory. Yeah. Uh, the fact that I talk about race, people think it's bad to talk about race. Well, uh, if you think that, you're probably white. I'll just say that because if, at least according to here, when you were in majority white areas, if you are not white, you most likely are thinking about race or yeah. you're at least being reminded that you are not white in multiple different ways. And that's why we talk about implicit and explicit biases. We talk about uh, what actually is racism, what Mm -hmm. is prejudice, to understand these terms because they're very real things. Yeah. But no, I did not have kids like tally up their privilege points or something. (laughs) That's the fear of people. Mr. Henley does not tell his students to hate America. He doesn't tell his students that they are racist. He helps them explore the history of this country, a history that is soaked in decisions made regarding race, from James Madison's slaves in 1812 to Woodrow Wilson's permission to segregate the White House and the federal government in 1912. However, in discovering the full truths of such Virginian heroes, students may question their fame. That's the power in teaching history, because history can shed light that changes ideology values, and patriotism. 
Kara brings up Dr. Beverly Tatum, author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? She attributes a lot of it to fear. So I think a base fear, yes, but a fear perhaps for different reasons. Another no-no word around these parts, I guess you could say, is privilege. Because mm -hmm. um, we are in a lower economic area. We're majority white and lower economic. And there's a struggle for people who are in a lower social economic class to understand that there's still privilege when it comes to gender identity, race, uh, sexual orientation. One day I had a student ask me like, is there gonna be like a time where we like, don't have to constantly be thinking about what we say or like what race is or like what racism is. And it's like, there shouldn't be. Uh, maybe I'll just be more comfortable and I won't feel as uncomfortable as it does for you now. There is a difference between teaching CRT and teaching race relations in America critically. When students are taught critical thinking skills, they are potentially being groomed to investigate for themselves. It teaches the opposite of passivity. It pushes students into actions of inquiry. For humility and understanding, all history must be examined. I find it interesting that when Youngkin said the same in his order, he glazed over the bad, listing the horrors of slavery and segregation and the treatment of Native Americans first, before turning victorious, trumpeting, and again here I quote, the triumph of America's greatest generation against the Nazi empire, the heroic efforts of Americans in the civil rights movement, and our country's defeat of the Soviet Union and the ills of communism. It's this ideal of American greatness, putting the best of America first, and maybe not talking so much about the flaws of the system. We were taught American exceptionalism. This was the greatest country, and I believed it. And so I, I do feel like a loss when I come to realize, well, great for whom? This is what James Lowen considered the biggest lie, that America started off great and continues to climb up that mountain to perfection. It's the most dangerous of lies because it tells the victim that they are wrong, that they are actually at fault for claiming that white colonists stole their land, their children, their lives, that the American government only does what is best, right, and honorable. In response to the vandalism of a statue of Andrew Jackson, former President Trump's favorite former president, in June of 2020, he tweeted, this is a battle to save the heritage, history, and greatness of our country. Yet this is the Andrew Jackson of the Indian Removal Act. The Andrew Jackson of the Trail of Tears, when 7,000 American troops forced the last remaining Cherokees off their land without letting them gather their belongings, forcing them on a march during which 4,000 Cherokee people died of hunger, cold, and disease. This is the culture war. A war of truth and information, history and race, simmering underneath more violent and deadly actions. To maintain power, one must maintain a rigidity that allows for no objectors. Protesters become the problem. Naysayers are said to be liars. But when we teach children, shouldn't we be teaching them to think and question and wonder and research so that they can say nay when it is right for them to object to the bad practices of their predecessors? Isn't that how we move forward? Isn't that what makes them good citizens? 
And shouldn't we put more faith in educators like Mr. Hindley so that we don't lose them? At the end of the day, if everybody walks out my room a decent human being and they've learned a little bit along the way and they can build upon that knowledge and don't reset when they come back after summer, I feel like I've done my job. We always have to learn new history. It's not a static content area. And you have to learn it because we uncover new uh, information that changes and sheds light on a story that we might not have fully understood. Thanks for listening. We owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. To Morningstar and Rose Cherry for talking to us about the many injustices, joys, and nuances of Native American heritage. And thank you to Kara Hoistler-Bohan for her knowledge and expertise on America's textbooks and the education of race, as well as the educator TJ Hindley for sharing his philosophies and experiences. And a thank you to the source material we used for research and background for this episode. To the late James Lowen, Beverly Tottam, Bennett Minton, Ibram X. Kendi on Now This News, Deb Holland, David Truer, Anya Kamenetes for NPR, and the Nanticoke Museum and Website Stories. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Abby Newhouse, and Melissa Wade. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, we'reherepodcast.com, at our Instagram at we'rehere.podcast, or on Twitter at we underscore re here. Until next week, we're here.